really excited to be here and uh, really looking forward to what we're going to be uh, talking about. Now, I'm going to spend the first hour sort of laying some foundational stuff. We're going to look at a little verse by verse through Genesis chapter 3. And then in the second hour, I'm going to give you some selected examples that I give in the book of the spirit of the Antichrist that is being manifest today uh, as we get closer and closer to our Lord's return. But uh, I really uh, appreciate uh, Jeremy letting me come. And I guess to sort of introduce the topic, I was thinking about this yesterday at our hotel. You know, as long as I can remember from being just a little boy, I have had an interest in sort of the grand scheme of human history, the big picture, God's a plan of the ages. Now, I grew up in a Christian home and was taught, uh, you know, dispensational paradigm and truth and, of course, grew up with a Schofield reference Bible and my grandfather was a preacher. So uh, I'm not just talking about sort of biblical hermeneutics and how to interpret scripture, but I'm talking about this. I had just a, a healthy obsession with kind of the cosmic struggle between God and Satan and this battle to take control of the created realm. And I can remember one time as a little boy, I think I was probably about 13. I'm trying to place it in my mind as I was thinking about it yesterday. I, I had a friend named Jimmy who spent the night uh, and we stayed up all night. Now, Jimmy was not a Christian, uh, but he had a lot of questions about God and so forth. And, and we stayed up all night. Uh, just talking, I remember very vividly about God and evil and creation and the devil. And I didn't have all the answers, uh, but I sure did my best to kind of explain to him in my limited, you know, boyhood mind, God's meta narrative of biblical history. And so, uh, but the material that, that is in this new book just came out March 21st. The Lord's really opened doors right and left. Uh, I think it's the most important book I've ever written. It's our 10th book. Um, but uh, the, the, the material in this really kind of in seed form began about 15 years ago uh, when I was uh, working in academics, teaching full-time at a Bible college, and a colleague of mine and I went to lunch, and he began to share some things with me that really got me thinking, and, uh, and frankly, a lot of them were things I'd never heard before about uh, the way things really are in our world. And, uh, but because I respected him, uh, even though at first I thought, man, he's talking nonsense, but, but out of respect for him, and I knew he was an intelligent biblicist, I thought, I'm going to go down this rabbit hole and look into it a little deeper. And so I, that began my journey and my family's journey, and we began really looking into this and did a lot of research. We've traveled the country coast to coast, been in all 50 states, spoken in a lot of different uh, churches over 35 years of ministry. And, uh, and you know, i my first book on this subject was back in 2012 called The Great Last Day's Deception. And it was just sort of a primer, a basic, as I was getting into all this stuff, I thought, man, I've got to get the word out. I've got to explain uh, what God's word really says related to what's happening today and how they correlate. Uh, but then, you know, that was, what, 10 years ago. And so uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, this is volume one. Volume two is set to come out October, November. And uh, I am... Quite sure that a lot of the material in the book, uh, which we're going to talk about three at three manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist in the second hour, are things that you may not have ever thought about. And so, as I'll say repeatedly today, uh, this morning, and in the second hour, uh, don't take my word for anything you hear. I encourage you to study it for yourself, run it through the grid of Scripture, and uh, come to your own conclusions. But I'm confident 
uh, if you let the facts speak for themselves, that you'll probably land at the same place uh, uh, that, I, that I am. So I'm just really delighted uh, to be here. And so the book, just to give you a quick summary, I basically expose what David talks about in Psalm 2, the Luciferian conspiracy. How many of you believe Satan has been trying to take over this world since he got kicked out of heaven? I mean, that should be self-evident. Uh, he couldn't have the throne of God in heaven, so he said, I'll have the earth. And that's why he's called the God of the sage, the prince of the power of the air. Um, the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, First John tells us. Um, and so uh, if that's the case, and if what David says in Psalm 2 is the case, uh, there no doubt is a conspiracy involving Satan, demons, and human agents that are seeking very hard to usher in a one-world uh, system. So that's the premise of the book, and I'll say more about that in the second hour. We also have a 18 uh, video DVD streaming, so you can either get it on DVD or streaming, uh, that kind of touches on all of these topics in, you know, a briefer format, but it's video, and I have a lot of clips and news clips and things like that that are shown in the video, but the more detailed uh, account is uh, in the book. And so, again, the premise of the book, if you want to kind of follow along, is from 1 John chapter 4, um, where John says, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Notice the capital A there, and is now already in the world. So what does John mean when he says here in the late first century that the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world today? Uh, well, he explains this earlier in the same letter when in chapter 2 he says it's the last hour. In Scripture, by the way, last days, last hour always refers to the present church age. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, we learn that God, who at various times and in various ways spoke to us in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us through his Son, who is the express image of his glory. So uh, the last hour is talking about the present church age, not just John's day, but what has now gone on for 2,000 years. And he says, as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, again, the capital A, that man of sin that's going to rule the world in satanic tyranny for seven years. We'll talk more about that in the second hour. But notice he says, but even now many antichrists, lowercase a, have already come. Paul puts it this way, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Uh, now in chapter 2 here of 2 Thessalonians, he's talking about this same future world tyrant, the antichrist. He calls him the man of sin, the son of perdition. Um, uh, also, Paul, in his letters to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he says, The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, indicating, contrary to what some people teach, that certainly uh, the spiritual warfare and demonic element of that spiritual warfare is still very prevalent uh, today. Otherwise, why would Paul be concerned that people will be giving uh, uh, heed uh, to them? And then he says in his second letter, know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. Perilous times will come. And so the Antichrist, we know, is a liar like his uh, father, the devil. Uh, he is going to perform according to the working of Satan, very, various powers and signs and lying wonders. Paul tells us in verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians 2 that he's going to be functioning with all unrighteous deception. So that's the conspiracy in a nutshell. A conspiracy is just two or more entities working together for nefarious means, if you look it up in a dictionary. And the greatest conspiracy of all time 
is Satan, who conspired first with angels to overthrow God in heaven, took one-third of the angels with him when he got kicked out of heaven, and is now conspiring with both demons, fallen angels, and human agents uh, to take over the world, to take over the created realm. David, as I mentioned, talks about this in the second psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Notice, the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together. They're conspiring together, plotting together against the Lord, obviously that's Yahweh there, all caps, and against his anointed. That's the eternal Son and our Savior Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, what are they plotting to do? What are they taking counsel together to do? He goes on to tell us. They're saying amongst themselves, let us break their bonds, a reference to the triune God, the Lord and his anointed, and, and of course God the Holy Spirit. Let us break their bonds and cast away their cords. In other words, Satan does not like God's sovereign control. It's the reason he you know, rebelled in heaven to begin with. Uh, he has control issues. He wants this realm for his own. But David tells us God laughs at him because, of course, as this psalm goes on to say, I don't have it on the screen, but in verses 5 and 6, we know that Jesus Christ essentially is already on the throne. He's not there actually, but it's as good as done. God has already ordained that Jesus Christ, because of course this was written a thousand years before Calvary, but to, to the eternal God, God is timeless. So everything happens in the eternal now. So even though from human perspective of time, space, and matter, Calvary happened at a point on a timeline, from God's perspective, Christ's ultimate reign on the Davidic throne in the kingdom someday for all of eternity. Remember, when he takes the throne, he will rule forever and ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end, uh, David, or Daniel tells us. Uh, that's as good as done. And so God says, I, I, he, or David says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. So as we go through a lot of this material, both in this hour and the next hour, I want to encourage you to keep the big picture in mind. I'm going to come back to it again at the end and give you some encouragement and some sort of, you know, what do we do with this information? How, where do we go from here? But let us never forget that the battle's already won. Uh, God has won the battle. Satan is defeated. He just doesn't believe it. He still thinks he has a fighting chance. And so he's working very hard uh, in this conspiracy to try to defeat uh, God. But let's, let's hang on to this promise from David uh, that uh, he who sits in the heavens shall Laugh. So Paul describes this spiritual element or spiritual component of this conspiracy uh, in Ephesians 6, well-known passage referring to the spiritual warfare uh, that is going on in the unseen realm. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So for this morning, I want to talk about uh, Satan's deception and how to avoid being deceived. And if we want to avoid being deceived, as so many are, and by the way, many Christians are as well, about the realities. We've bought into Satan's uh, deception uh, and believed a lot of lies. And I'm going to mention three of those in the second hour. But in order to really identify it, we've got to understand Satan's MO. Uh, and Satan is not creative. God's the creator, not Satan. Satan just uses the same tired old, tired old methods. So if we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, we see the anatomy of deception, and then you'll find that he's using the same methods today, 6,000 years later, as he continues to try 
to deceive people. So I'll put the verses on the screen, but if you want to follow along, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 uh, this morning. So we read, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now we know uh, that the serpent is Satan. We don't know that from Genesis because you can read the entire book of Genesis and you'll never find a single reference to the devil or Satan. But we know from comparing scripture with scripture, when you get to Revelation 12, it tells us that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. So we know, we know contextually based on what's going on as well as comparing scripture with scripture that we're dealing here with the prince of demons, Satan himself. And the text tells us the serpent was more cunning. That word cunning, cunning is the Hebrew word achrum, which means crafty or shrewd. It's only used 11 times in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. And sometimes it's actually used in a positive sense. It's used in Proverbs uh, to speak of, and it's translated at least in the New King James as prudence. Uh, but the idea here in the context is a craftiness with an evil purpose. And, and the text tells us that he was more cunning than any other beast of the field. And Genesis chapter 3, 1, uh, Achrum, their cunning, is connected uh, into what we read in chapter 2 with a Hebrew wordplay, because in chapter 2, if you recall, the text tells us that Adam and Eve were naked, which is Achrumim, and the serpent was Achrum. In other words, their nakedness represented the fact that they were innocent, oblivious to evil, blind to where the traps might lay. Whereas Satan would use his craftiness to take advantage of their ignorance. And of course, mankind was created in the image of God with free will. And we know uh, the rest of the story. So uh, again, as I said, this, uh, this crafty serpent was Satan. Revelation 12, that serpent of old who's called the devil and Satan and deceives the whole world. So right out of the chute, Satan's attempt is to deceive. It started in heaven when he gathered some angels together and he said, you know, follow me, I'm better than that guy, I'm more powerful than that guy, I can usurp the control of that guy, so let's get this done. And of course, God uh, had other things to say about the matter, and Satan was banished to earth, not banished where he couldn't come and go to heaven, he still comes and goes to heaven, we know that from the book of Job, but at the midpoint of the tribulation, by the way, in the future seven-year tribulation, he will be confined only to the earth at that point for the final three and a half years. But Satan's deception is really uh, his uh, M.O. And um, uh, the fact that Satan manifested as a snake is a good reminder that uh, he comes often in disguise. He comes quite unexpectedly. Uh, and it's also interesting that deception often comes from a subordinate, someone over whom you might expect to have exercised dominion. We know from the text that God put man in the garden, gave him dominion over all of the animals, and yet uh, the serpent was more cunning. And when you get to John chapter 1, we find out that all things were made through Christ. A lot of people forget that Christ is the creator of the universe, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And then in, in uh, going back to John's letters in 1 John uh, chapter 5, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So this cosmic struggle that I'm going to be talking about that goes all the way back to creation and in, in, into the garden is essentially a, a battle between life and death. Uh, Satan loves death, as we shall see. He, his MO is deception. And I think 
as we look at the Genesis 5 account, five core components of deception begin uh, to emerge. So the origin can be traced all the way back to Satan's interaction with Eve in the garden, and it kind of gives us Satan's battle plan, and nothing has changed. Nothing has changed since then. As Satan seeks to deceive the world, he's using this same uh, tired old uh, battle plan. And step one is to question truth. Deception always begins by questioning truth. Uh, listen to what we read in, in verse 1. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Has God indeed said? In other words, is that really the truth? Did God really say that? Did you really hear right? Is that really true? It's really what's at the heart of Pilate's question to Jesus some 4,000 years later when he said, what is the truth? Or what is truth, rather? What is truth? So question the truth. Essentially, Satan begins by planting the seed that God's word is questionable. Today, God's word, of course, is God's written special revelation, the inspired and errant word of God. In the day, it was God's word to Adam and Eve in the garden. But uh, deception always begins with a seed of doubt. And he planted this seed. Has God really said? God's word is questionable, in other words. And then his second step in these five core components is to misrepresent truth. To misrepresent truth. Notice what he says. You sh has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now, is that what God really said? So not only is he questioning God's word, but he's misrepresenting what God said. If we go back to chapter 2, here's what God said. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, except one. Except one. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Satan misrepresented uh, God's truth, what God had said. And then Eve we go back to chapter 3, influenced by Satan's misrepresentation, likewise misrepresented the truth of God's word. What did she say in response to the question? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now we just read what God said. Did God say that? Not at all. No. God said, In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Eve also downplayed the consequence because where God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die, Eve said, in the day we eat of it or touch it, or we shouldn't eat or touch it, lest we die. Lest we die. In other words, you, you might die. It's kind of dangerous. Don't, don't eat it. Don't touch it, which God didn't say don't touch it. Or you might die, but God said you will surely die. So as Satan works his deceptive schemes, uh, as the crafty evil uh, serpent that he is, he questions truth, and then he misrepresents truth, essentially saying truth is a matter of opinion. And that's the second step in the pathway to deception. You make truth broader, less precise, open to interpretation subject to opinion. The quest for deception always starts by questioning and misrepresenting truth. It makes truth a moving target. 
able to be manipulated and spun a matter of opinion. And then you get to the, the uh, de facto deception, and that is step three, when Satan directly contradicts truth. He's leading her down a path, and having questioned it and then misrepresented it, he outright contradicts it, because as we read in verse four, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It directly contradicts what God, the creator of the universe, has said. He Satan blatantly negated the penalty of death that God had given. And we need to remember that Satan is a liar from the beginning. And, and this is his lie, by the way. Jesus tells us he's a lie. I'm going to show you that in a second. But here's the lie that Satan from the beginning tells people. You can sin and get away with it. There's no consequence for sin. There's no consequence positionally. There's no consequence practically. But the Bible tells us there is a penalty for sin, and that's mankind's greatest need positionally. But Jesus put it this way, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. This is the words of Christ. Why doesn't he stand? Because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. This is when Jesus was speaking to the scribes and Pharisees after the woman caught in adultery. And a little earlier, Jesus had said in the same context, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. The truth. The more you know the truth, the more easily you will recognize a lie. Going back to 1 John, which is kind of the premise for the book, uh, John writes, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Well, you can't discern that no lie is of the truth unless you know the truth, right? You've got to have the standard. And so as we go back to the four components of deception, Satan questioned truth, he misrepresented truth, and then he directly contradicted truth when he said death and judgment are an illusion. Eve should have immediately corrected Satan when he contradicted God. But instead, she sat passively by. She agreed with this lie when she should have disagreed. You know, I, there's a common phrase in this postmodern age, we just have to agree to disagree. I hate that phrase. I think what we need is more people with the courage to disagree to agree. That's what we need. We need people willing to stand up and say, that is not true. Uh, you know, you may be uh, entitled you know, to your opinion, but you're not entitled to be wrong. Truth exists, absolutely. And um, we need to be willing to point that out. God's word most certainly does not suggest that death and judgment are an illusion, the way Satan suggested they are. Paul tells us, for example, the wages of sin is death. For those who fail to receive the free gift of eternal life, you better believe there's a judgment. Justice will prevail. And, you know, a lot of times uh, people struggle with this uh, question uh, of, you know, how can God send people to hell? Well, I always like to remind people, God never sends anybody to hell. God's doing everything he possibly can to keep people from going to hell. You know, think about the situation in the garden. You know, we sometimes mischaracterize what was going on there between God and Adam and Eve when God gave them the warning about uh, the, the forbidden fruit. And God wasn't 
playing games with them or setting up some kind of a carrot or tempting them, obviously. We know God tempts no one. What God was doing was expressing his love. He made man in his image with free will. If they didn't, have, if we didn't have free will, we would just be a bunch of you know androids or automatons or robots or whatever. Uh, but because we had free will, God put this tree in the garden. He said, "No, look, I'm going to warn you. I love you so much. I don't want you to die. So please, don't eat that fruit." It's the same way a loving parent might say, "Don't touch the hot stove or don't play in the street." Right? We we love our children. We don't want them to get hurt. And God said, "I don't want you to get hurt. <laughs> I, I want you to." Stay away from that tree. Don't eat from it, because when you do, you're going to die. Now, of course, what we did is we marched right over there and took a great big bite, because we were right there with Adam and Eve in the garden. And at that moment, it's when people question God's justice in the reality of hell, in essence, what they are saying, now follow me on this, in essence, what they are saying is that in that moment, what God should have said when we ate the fruit is, Oh, no, no problem. Don't worry. Uh, everybody makes mistakes. You know, that death thing that I mentioned, I was just kidding about that. It's not really true. You're going to be okay. That's what they're wanting God to do. And I got to tell you, I'm glad God didn't do that. Because if that's what God had done, it would prove that our God is a fickle, unfaithful, untrustworthy, lying God. So God said, you're going to die? Guess what? We're going to die. God is tr trustworthy. But see, the rest of the story is that God, even though we got ourselves into that predicament, God sent his eternal son and our savior to the earth to put on human flesh to live a perfect, holy, sinless life so that he could take your penalty and my penalty on the cross, defeating death, hell, and the grave, paying the price, satisfying the righteous demands of the holy God. And then having purchased life, as we read about a moment ago, the life is in the son, having purchased life with his own blood, he then offers it freely to all, who will receive it by faith. So that in that moment, if we trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins, we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us and we and our sins are forgiven positionally and we're now made right with a holy God. And it's totally free. We didn't earn it. We can't earn it. He paid a debt we didn't know because we owed a debt we could never pay. And so that's the rest of the story. So if anybody ends up in hell, they have no one to blame but themselves. You know, Jesus... He says, whosoever will, let him come, right? And anybody that refuses to receive the gift, we can't force it upon them. Forced love is no love at all. Uh, the gift must be freely offered and freely received. But if you don't receive the gift, God is God, and he's faithful and true to his word, unlike uh, the liar Satan. Um, for those who fail to receive this free gift, justice will prevail. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. I'll show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. And someday those who don't receive the payment for their sin that was made by Christ on their behalf, those who do not receive the free gift are going to stand before the great white throne. And uh, the dead, small and great, will be standing before God, and books will be opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works, and no matter how many books of good works a person might bring to this judgment, is not going to be enough, because God doesn't grade on the curve. God doesn't say, well, you're in the 99th percentile, come right on in. Jesus said, you've got to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So, and James, the Lord's brother, said, if you sin in the smallest part, you're guilty of all. 
So no amount of good works can change who you are as a child of wrath. But if your name is found written in the book of life, then, then that's all that matters. That's all that matters. And those that are judged according to their works are cast into uh, the eternal lake of fire, as we read about in verses 14 and 15. In our chart book, we have our over 100 charts that are our most popular charts through the years of uh, 35 years of ministry. And we have a chart that talks about all of the end times judgments that will happen uh, after the rapture. Uh, but uh, judgment day is coming someday for everyone. And yet Satan proclaimed, you will not surely die. <laughs> That's a lie. That's what he told Eve. So Satan questioned truth. He misrepresented the truth. Then he directly contradicts it. And then he begins to shift the focus away from truth to perception. See, what he's trying to do is dismantle truth. And by the way, in this postmodern age, uh, you know, historians have rightly, I believe, identified three major uh, epochs or time periods in human history, the pre-modern age, the modern age, and the postmodern age. And in the postmodern age, what we have seen is not so much an attack on truth like we saw in the modern age where the battle was between faith versus science, but instead it's just the sort of the dismissing of truth. It's like truth is, you know, everybody has their own truth. We don't deny the existence of it. We just say that there's not a universal truth, capital T, that's true for all people at all times. And that's what we see happening next in the text. The pathway to deception shifts the focus away from truth to perception. In verse 5, for God knows, notice the four there, he's going to explain why he claims that God says, that God is wrong about you dying. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, in other words, perception is more important than reality. Is that really what God said? How does Satan know what's in the mind of God? Satan purports here to get inside the mind of God and look at his motive for why he said what he said. God just told you you'd die because he's jealous and doesn't want you to be like him. He didn't tell you you'd die because you'll die. You will not surely die. Don't listen to God. Let me tell you what God really meant. Sound familiar? We live in a day and age where words no longer have inherent meaning. What matters is what the person thinks you think you meant. Uh, it's all about perception. And so the fourth step is to shift the focus from truth to perception because perception is more important than reality. Reality doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. We live in an age of virtual reality. What matters is perception. Style over substance, form over function. They say the makeup man is more important than the speechwriter. And that's why we live in an age where we all get our news, most people uh, who you know, should know better, but we get our news from some teleprompter reading, you know, nice looking men and women with makeup on. And, and it's just a different day. It's a day of speculation rather than empirical evidence. People have little use for facts anymore. In fact, these days it's extremely difficult to look beyond the presentation, beyond the style, to the facts of the matter. People are more easily swayed by the bells and whistles than they are the actual substance of it. And as a, a conference speaker and a radio host and 
the things that doing interviews and stuff. I, I struggle with that because I'm not the most gifted artistic, you know, presenter and someone who worries about that stuff. I just kind of speak the truth. And uh, unfortunately, uh, these days you, you need a little more pizzazz to, to get uh, people to listen. But remember what our second president, John Adams, said, facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passion, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Or in our day, more bluntly, Ben Shapiro said, facts don't care about your feelings in his book. So shift the focus from truth to perception, and then he completes the cycle of deception by inventing new meaning for truth. That's the final step in the pathway uh, to deception. He redefines the plain, normal meaning of God's word to suit his own needs. Remember, what did Jesus say? Satan is a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said in John 10, Satan comes to kill, right? Um, Peter tells us that he's a, a roaring lion roaming the earth looking for whom he may devour. Satan loves death. Proverbs says, all who hate God love death. And so Satan loves death. And so his whole agenda here, and we know Satan's agenda. We don't have to speculate what was in his mind. We can read the word of God and we know what his agenda is, is to kill. And by the way, uh, I'm not planning to get into it in the second hour because I've just spoken about it Wednesday. We did a uh, lengthy uh, presentation. You can watch the video at notbyworks.org on our website. Be sure and pick up one of our cards and you can you know, easily access our website. Tons of free videos and uh, uh, articles and uh, podcasts and things like that. But Wednesday I talked about Satan, the Antichrist, and the Grand Conspiracy. And I talked in there about transhumanism, the depopulation agenda, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, at length. Quote after quote after quote, including some very recent quotes from Klaus Schwab's brand new book that just came out this year called The Grand Narrative, uh, and it's all about death. They want to kill 95% you know, of the world's population so they can have this playground for themselves. We're all just useless breathers, right? Uh, they don't want us to own anything. Uh, they want to get rid of us. So that's their goal, but in order to accomplish that goal, Satan very shrewdly, you know, crafty, works through this process. He plants a seed of doubt by questioning truth. And then he misrepresents the truth. And, uh, and then he just outright contradicts it. And by the time you get there, most people are so flummoxed that they can't even identify truth if they had to. That's why it's so critical that we be anchored to the Word of God as the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. It gives us the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. And then he begins the shift, the subtle shift away from truth to perception. And then, uh, and then he outright invents new meaning uh, for truth. Words have no meaning is what he's implying. If you look at verse 5 again, he says, God knows in the day you eat of it, your eyes will open, you will be like God. So think about what Satan did here. He went from God saying, don't eat from this tree or you'll die, to you will be like God. Now, is there any correspondence or connection between those two statements whatsoever? And yet that's what the deconstruction of language is all about. You know, if you think about it, 
in, in these latter days, one of the reasons I believe we're getting closer and closer again, as uh, you know, we believe in the doctrine of imminency. We have a, a, a DVD and a streaming video uh, teaching that biblical doctrine, a couple of them actually. And so we can't set dates. We're not here saying, oh, the rapture is going to happen tomorrow. I mean, I hope it happens tomorrow. Would you vote for that if it was left up to us? But it's not up for a Democratic vote. And even if it was, you couldn't count on the results to be accurate. But uh, anyway, uh, but so we don't know when it's going to happen. We believe it could happen at any moment. That's what the doctrine of imminency is all about. But Jesus does tell us to look to the signs of the times. And so as we see things unfolding that are setting the stage for the Antichrist satanic reign of terror, as we see things unfolding that are setting the stage for other events in the future, such as the Battle of Gog and Magog, such as uh, the rebuilding of the temple, so forth and so on, obviously we know that if those things are getting closer, the rapture must be even closer because it happens before all those things, right? If you look at our eschatology textbook out there on the table, What Lies Ahead, a Biblical Overview of the End Times, 350 some odd pages, it's got a appendix at the back called Sequential Order of End Times Events. And it's 30-something things, I think, uh, as best I understand how they're going to play out. What do you think is number one on that list? The rapture. That's the next great prophetic event to which the world looks forward. But after that, all these other things unfold. So if I'm seeing the setting of the stage for things that are third or fifth or eighth on that list, then it sort of makes me scratch my head and go, wow, it might be soon. Uh, one of the biggest signs of the times, I think, was the reestablishment of Israel in May, May 15, 1948, after World War II. Because, of course, the end times plan of God involves the spotlight recentering on Israel. The Antichrist is going to reign from the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Christ himself, when he comes back, is going to reign from the millennial temple, as Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 40 or 48. Well, if there's going to be a temple and a throne and a Jerusalem, there's got to be a, an Israel. So when Israel was reconstituted in 1948, it made a lot of you know, literal Bible prophecy experts kind of go, oh, wow, that gets our attention. It also led to a lot of false teaching and misunderstanding and date setting and things. But those are the kinds of signs that I'm talking about. And essentially the whole premise of this book, as I explained in the introduction, is if the spirit of the Antichrist is already alive today like John tells us it is, well, we know from the biblical record what some of the characteristics of the capital A Antichrist are going to be. There's a lot of data in here. I spend the first couple of chapters going through it from Daniel, from uh, Jesus teaching uh, in, in the Olivet Discourse, from uh, Paul's teaching, from obviously the book of Revelation. We learn a lot about who the Antichrist is and what he's going to be doing. Well, if that spirit is already alive today, then those characteristics of the capital A Antichrist ought to be you know, flourishing and we ought to see an uptick in them. So I basically just made a list of every characteristic of the Antichrist from Scripture, collated them down into a cat seven categories, and then set out to uh, present it. We did it first in an 18-part video series, and then we started working on the book. And I originally intended for it to be one volume, but I only got through the first of the seven manifestations of the Antichrist, and I was already at 300 pages, so we're going to do a second volume to deal with the rest of them. But the first one is deception, and that's the most powerful one. And that's what we're talking about how to avoid here today. But the gathering cloud of deception that is intensifying every day as Satan and his co-conspirators seek to overthrow the world uh, is probably most vividly and profoundly seen in his attack on language. And maybe that's why the atheist uh, German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, 
I fear we are not getting rid of God because we still believe in grammar. See, the minute words have no meaning, it's, it's, it's game over, really. I mean, for example, Paul said in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. <laughs> so if words have no meaning, then even the gospel enterprise comes under attack. And I think as we go back to Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see Satan's attack on fundamental institutions of creation. Obviously, he has attacked marriage. He's attacked gender, which, you know, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us God created man in his image, male and female he created. Them. I think one of the most demonic attacks of our day is this attack on gender. I call it the gender surrender movement. We have a, a DVD as part of the Spirit of the Antichrist on that whole subject. Uh, and then language. He's attacking language. Uh, he's attacking the family. Now he's attacking the church. We don't see the church in Genesis, but we see that as an institution in God's progressive revelation that is now uh, you know, a, uh, under attack in our day. So uh, you know, we, we see this attack on language. You know? um, it's all about what does it mean to me instead of what does it mean, right? Uh, or it depends on the meaning of is. Remember that statement from our first postmodern president, time-wise? Uh, it's what's in, in biblical hermeneutics is called reader-response hermeneutics. And, and that's the way a lot of Christians read the Bible. They'll, they'll sit in a circle. Everyone has a Bible on their lap, a facilitator, not a teacher, because a teacher implies you land someplace. But in the postmodern age, it's all signpost and no destination. So he, reads a, he or she reads a passage, everyone goes around, this is what it means to me, this is what it means to me, this is what it means to me. By the time you're done, you have 10 meanings, and the facilitator is applauding, saying, oh, you're all so insightful and spiritual, and look at all those wonderful meanings, when in reality, there's one meaning. <laughs> it's called the singularity of meaning. That's a biblical principle for hermeneutics. So uh, basically, the question is, you know, where does meaning reside? Does it reside with the words on the page or the spoken word of the speaker or does it reside with the listener or the reader? Some people say it resides uh, in the words of the page. That's what we believe. That It's called authorial intent. I get to determine what I mean when I'm speaking, not you. You know, I can't you know, walk up to the person at the counter at McDonald's and say, I'd like a quarter pounder with cheese and a large fry and the person on the other side of the counter goes, well, thank you very much. I'll be happy to get you an apple pie and a Dr. Pepper. And you go, that's not what I said at all. I, I know, but that's what you meant. You know, No, no, it's not what I meant. I, I meant a quarter pounder with cheese and a large fry. Of course, at McDonald's these days, it's probably what you're going to get. But um, Or does it reside somewhere in the middle? Some people call it the interpretive dance. You know, that, well, you know, you got to interact with the words and mystically come up with this meaning. Or some people just outright today say, no, meaning resides with the listener. I get to determine what you mean. And that's a real problem. I mean, that's what the whole issue it was with uh, Common Core and some of the new educational techniques. We have a DVD on Common Core out there. But uh, this whole concept of, uh, of, of the new math that they came up with, you know, you can imagine how chaotic that is. You know, the teacher asks, what is two plus two? And the student puts five. The teacher marks it wrong hands the quiz back, the student then goes up to the teacher's desk and says, I have a problem. The teacher says, well, what is it, Johnny? And Johnny says, well, it's this question right here, two plus two. And the teacher says, yes, I understand, Johnny, you put five. 
Uh, that's incorrect. And Johnny says, no, no, but I thought by 2 plus 2 you meant 2 plus 3. That's what I thought you meant. See, I get to determine what the question is. I get to determine what you mean. So it, it destroys the ability to communicate, which is what Satan is, you know, it's a part of his long-term plan to destroy the earth and take it over for himself. If you can't communicate, you know, what else can you, what can you do, right? Uh, remember 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's blinding men's hearts to the gospel. One way that he does that is by, you know, uh, creating all of these false presentations of the gospel. And that's what my first book, written a uh, long time ago, Getting the Gospel Wrong, it's now in its second edition. Uh, we added a, a chapter and a, a new preface and some, some things because the gospel is already under attack. But I give six common false gospels that are prevalent today um, when really the Bible is quite clear. If there's one thing the Bible is clear on, it's the gospel message, the good news of how to be saved from the penalty of sin. But we need to remember that meaning always resides with the original speaker or the original author. So that final step in Satan's plan is words have no meaning. Uh, words have no meaning. Once we get to the point where words have no meaning, it's game over. Uh, and this, again, goes all the way back to Genesis. You know, secular anthropology and, and Darwinian science tries to convince us that language came along millions of years after man evolved from a wet rock and eventually crawled out of the sea and then crawled out of a cave and eventually we figured out how to communicate and invented language. That's not the testimony of Scripture. God's Word tells us that God spoke the world into existence and he didn't create man till the sixth day. So which comes first, mankind or language? Language. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So it's, it's a very key issue that I think is lost on a lot of, um, you know, otherwise, you know, God-fearing, good, solid, biblical Christians. They just miss the fact that this deception that is the great, the gathering cloud of deception, which is the subtitle of the book, is sweeping across uh, the world. They, they miss the significance uh, of language. So how do we guard against this spirit of pretense? Uh, the Antichrist, like Satan, is a great deceiver, and we're going to see this spirit of the Antichrist you know, manifest in many, many ways, and I'm going to mention three of them in the second hour. Um, by the way, if there are folks that come to the second hour and they listen to the message and they think, wow, this guy is a nutcase, just have them listen to this so they know that I at least attempted to make the biblical basis and foundation for what I'm going to be talking about in the, in the second hour. But going back to 1 John, the context where he says spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world is this. He says, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So it's not just a good idea to study the topic of deception and be aware of the lies all around us. All around us. It's a command. See, do not believe is, a, is an imperative in Greek there. And test, dokimatso, that's an imperative in Greek. Um, the word test, dokimatso, is used 21 times in the New Testament. And it's the same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 5. Test all things and hold fast uh, to what is good. In Ephesians chapter 5, dokimatso uh, is used and translated finding out. For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the world. So walk as children of life, finding out what is acceptable uh, to the Lord. We're commanded to walk as 
children of the light. How do we do that? By finding out the truth. Over the past 15 years or so of studying the Luciferian conspiracy, uh, I can't tell you how many believers tell me they don't want to know. Uh, they don't have the stomach for this stuff. They, they just say, ah, I mean, let me just, don't, I don't want to peek behind the curtain. Let me just go on in my pretend world. Uh, but we're commanded to find out. We're commanded to find out. Here it is right here in Ephesians 5. Uh, to test all things. That's the remedy for deception. So if we go back to 1 John 4, again, verse 2, this you know the spirit by the Spirit of God. Uh, every, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. That's what they were dealing with in John's day, the deity of Christ. But notice that such a heretical lie is a manifestation of the spirit of the Antichrist. And it can manifest with many other lies today, 2,000 years later. He goes, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, capital A, which you've heard is coming, and he is someday after the rapture. But he's, his spirit is already in the world. And John goes on to remind us in the next verse, but you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So we must never be scared, but prepared. Never scared, but aware. You know, fear is not of the Lord, uh, and we are. Uh, John goes to say, they are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world, and the world hears them. And, and again, as I mentioned at the outset this morning, later on in chapter 5, he reminds us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So the way to distinguish truth from error is to compare it to what the Bible teaches. And so that's what I try to do in the book is um, as I kind of lay the foundation, the first two or three chapters, and then I get into some of the manifestations of the spirit of the Antichrist. And again, it's a lot of subjects that are hidden in plain sight. People have no idea. Uh, some of the subjects, um, I don't have it on this slide. I have it in my second presentation. I'm going to mention several of the uh, the topics from the book, but if you look at uh, the table of contents, by the way, if you go to spiritoftheantichrist.org, we give you the whole preface, so you can kind of read and get a sense for what I'm going through, and then we also give you the entire table of contents, so you can see what uh, we're talking about. But I, I talk about things like fake news and censorship, Operation Mockingbird, the false left-right paradigm, geoengineering and the Hegelian dialectic, that's chapter 8, which we're going to cover in the second hour, that's two of the topics I wanted to cover. Talk about vaccines and big pharma, false flags and eugenics. And so, and then chapter 11 is avoiding deception where I kind of go into more detail about what I just shared with you here. So with that, we will uh, pray and uh, wrap up this uh, first session. Love to talk with you more about this information at uh, the table. Again, I, I really, God's really given me a burden for this topic. We're seeing people across the country wake up. God's uh, given us the opportunity to be on a lot of different um, you know, TV shows and radio shows and things like that and um, to, to God be the glory I never dreamed that this even though it's been a passion of mine for many years would get this kind of traction so I hope you'll take a look at it and love to answer your questions uh, let's pray together Father thank you for this great church and their firm stand on uh, your word and we thank you for uh, Pastor Jeremy and pray for his family pray for protection pray for continued blessings on the work of this church uh, here in Spokane. Thank you for the privilege of being a part of these with these brothers and sisters in Christ today and being able to share the word together. And Lord, we do pray that 
if there's one here within the sound of my voice, either live streaming or maybe watching the video later, that doesn't know you, that today in simple childlike faith, they would place their trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for their sins, your Son and our Savior. And it's in his precious name that we pray.